0: In the book of Esther, chapter two is where we'll get rolling. We'll make it through four, Lord willing. That's the goal, anyway. So, Esther chapter two. We're in the book of Esther because we are walking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But in the book of Ezra, we hit this huge time gap that is uh, right between chapter six and chapter seven. That uh, you don't really notice unless you're really paying attention to the narrative there. But it's about a hundred-year time gap. And toward the end of that time gap, at the uh, uh, in the book of Ezra, you have the events that take place in the book of Esther. So that's where we're at. We're in the book of Esther and we are, uh, looking to see what is going on. And we'll, this, uh, this morning we're going to take a look at, uh, Esther specifically, uh, we're going to take a, a look at her and kind of what her role is, at least initially in this story. I wonder how many of you guys are into the British Royal family. Is there anybody in here that would admit that? Like, raise your hand into the British royal family. Nobody admits it. I know you're all liars. Some of y'all got up at 4 o'clock in the morning or whatever it was to watch the, the wedding a few months ago. I know you probably did. Some of y'all did that. I know you did. Uh, for the life of me, I cannot understand why Americans are so obsessed with the British royal family, but it's absolutely uh, a thing. Uh, but a few months ago, something did get my attention. I don't know if you guys have seen this um, uh, th- this deal where, where Prince Harry and I is that Princess, I don't know. Anyways, where they decided, we're done. And they left the royal family. They decided, we're not doing this anymore. We're not playing these games anymore. We are out. We, they said, adios, we're, we're gone. They checked out, said no more. And I'm sure there's probably all kinds of like juicy gossip around this that I'm not aware of. But on its face, this is a really intriguing thing to me. I don't, I don't really care... Uh, or give a rip about the royal family, all that much. But on a human level, I find this fascinating. So this just happened a few months ago. They said, hey, we're out. We're not going to keep doing all of our royal duties where we have to show up and pretend that we care about things. We're just not going to do that anymore. We're, we're done. And then apparently this week they said they're done done. Like they really said they're done. I, I'm not sure what the difference was in the two, but they really finally cut ties. And apparently it's, it's pretty messy and all that kind of stuff. I gave up once it once it got to uh, to national Inquirerish ish, trying to figure out what in the world's going on. But I I, I realize that this is a this is a really big deal, and I suppose being a, a fly on the the Buckingham Palace wall to hear these conversations would probably be pretty uh, pretty fascinating to see that they gave it all up. Now I outside of the palace drama, this just fascinates me on a human level that two people would walk away from what most would consider the definition of luxury and privilege. Now, I realize this is not like they're moving into like a duplex in the country and, and forsaking it all and deciding to be poor and taking a vow of poverty. They're still doing just fine. But it's a choice that has some real consequences for them. It's a choice where they said, I'm done with the royal trappings and all that come along with it. And this morning, we pick up where we left off last week where uh n- not a prince or a princess but a queen walked off the job and said i'm done with this i'm not doing this anymore i don't care what you do to me if you'll remember we looked at king ahasuerus or uh, king xerxes it just depends on your translation whether they use the persian name or the greek name xerxes this is his more common name but we have him here as ahasuerus at least in my translation um But uh, Ahasuerus had thrown this massive party for six months. And then at the end of the six months, he was going to have the capstone, just really blow it all out party uh, in this as they were preparing for battle. And the culmination of all of this was to be his queen showing up uh, in her crown on full display for all to see. But that queen, Vashti, defies him and says, I'll take whatever consequences you want to dish out. I ain't doing this anymore so as best we can tell he spares her life just says that he never sees her again basically shuns her and casts her out Uh, and she says fine i'm out and she loses all of it she loses her title she loses her privileges she loses her money she loses all the things that come with being a queen she loses her security there's no there's no retirement plan for her here there's no like Uh, Money she's got stocked away in case of a rainy day. She doesn't have a rainy day fund. She is now without anything. She is gone. And that in and of itself was a grace from the king because he probably should have killed her. But all the security, everything that went with that is now gone. And we never hear of Vashti again. This week we're going to pick up from that point where, where Vashti walks away uh, because she's sent away, and where uh, Ahasuerus realizes, okay, what just happened? So this is, uh, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce you to Hadassah. And you say, well, who's Hadassah? It's Esther. And that's a big deal that she has two names, all right? So we'll, we'll talk about that here in just a few minutes. I'm going to introduce you to her, and I told you the way I'm going to tell this story is more by going character by character than event by event. Event, but we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, so after Vashti had had been sent away, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So stop right there. Basically what happens here is the king sobers up. He sobers up, he wakes up one morning, he sends for Queen Vashti, and they're like, uh, king, she's not here, she's gone. He's like, oh man, what did I do? Why did I do that? He, he's beginning to realize, wait a minute, I've sent my queen away and now I don't have a queen to send for. This is a problem. This is a big problem for him. And he realizes this may have been, this may have been a mistake. It seems as though there's some measure of, of regret or at least uh, that he kind of hates what has happened here. But he realizes that the whole point of the party was to, was to show how great and powerful he was. And he realizes he really did have to send her away if he was going to save face. And if he was going to keep all the men in the kingdom from being mad at him. Because uh, Vashti's example would have been really problematic for all the other wives in the kingdom if they decided to do the same thing. So he's stuck. He can't go back on what's happened. He's stuck and he has no queen. And that's when the counselors that are with him have a plan. Mrs. Esther chapter 2 verse 2. And then the king's young men who attended to him said, "Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins of the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young w- woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti." This pleased the king. And he did so. So you can kind of tell this is heading in, a, uh, in, a, in a, a rather seedy direction here. The king's men decide that they need to have a contest to replace Vashti. They, ha- they need to have a contest to see who this new queen would be. If the queen's throne is open, it needs to be filled. So they send out word to all the governors of the provinces and they say, "'Send all your most beautiful women to the palace.'" So the king can choose one of them. Now we don't know how many this was. We don't know if there was a small selection of women that were sent. We don't know if it was every young woman that was sent. Some commentators would say that it was every woman in the kingdom and they were to come. But logistically that seems almost impossible that they could pull that off. What seems most likely is that uh, the governors of each region hand selected a handful of women who knows how many, but a handful of women to go to the palace, and there's like 120 something provinces. There's a lot, so this is going to be a lot of women no matter what that show up and are to take part in this contest. It's a lot of women, the prettiest women in the kingdom. And they're about to go at it to figure out who's going to be the queen. This is a battle royale. Battle royale. This is part The Bachelor, part Hunger Games, like mix. This is, this is what we're, we're looking at here. And let's be clear. These women had no choice in the matter. Okay, So these governors did not come and say, Hey, would you be interested in being queen? Because if you would, I have a proposal for you. Now, what would have happened is that these governors would have gone to the, uh, the fathers or gone to the, the men of the community, and they, and they would have said, who's the most beautiful? Send them to me. They're headed to the capital. They're going to see the king. And they would have had no choice in the matter. They would have had to go. They would have been absolutely forced. But let's also be clear. A lot of these wom- women would have been fully on board with this. Not all of them, certainly, but a lot of them would have been on board with this. To have a shot at being the queen, this is beyond the wildest dreams of every one of these women. It's like a winning lottery ticket for them. No matter where they came from, to be the queen would have been a massive upgrade in status, in fortune, in what happens with your children after this. It would have been an upgrade on every level, socially, financially, security. All of it would have been An upgrade no doubt some did not want to be there but there's also no doubt that some did so which one was our hero esther after all she's the hero in this story we'll see that here in just a few minutes and we'll really see it more next week but she's the hero in the story and if you're going to be a bible hero you have to be impeccably uh moral you have to have uh, unquestioned morals in order to be a bible hero right if you believe that, you've probably not read the Bible a whole lot because we have all kinds of flawed heroes. So which one was Esther, though? Was she a reluctant participant or was she eager to be a part? Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in, in Susa, the citadel, so that's the capital, whose name was Mordecai. We'll talk a lot more about Mordecai last or next week. Just brief introduction this morning. The son of Jair, the son of Shim shimei Shime, the son of kish a benjamite who had been carried away from jerusalem among the captives carried away with jeconiah king of judah whom nebuchadnezzar king of babylon had carried away so his family had been taken away uh, whenever whenever babylon had had uh, taken down judah he was bringing up hadassah well who's hadassah it says that is esther The daughter of his uncle. She has two names. One, her Hebrew name, Hadassah. One, her Persian name that she is using, Esther. We'll know her as Esther for the rest of this story. The daughter of his uncle. So they're cousins. Now it says that he brought her up, so he's probably uh, quite a bit older than her, at least somewhat older than her. But they are cousins. They're family. And he is raising her. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. So here's a little backstory to our hero, this backstory story of, uh, of Esther. Mom and dad are gone, uh, her cousin Mordecai is raising her, she has this Hebrew name, Hadassah, but it's not the name that she uses. It's not the name she goes by for the rest of the story. It's not, this is not called the book of Hadassah. This is the book of Esther. And so she uses this name instead of her true, uh, her true Hebrew Jewish identity. She uses this name particularly to hide her identity. Specifically for that purpose. To hide the fact that she is Jewish. Why does she do this? Again... We don't know. If you'll remember last week, what I told you is this book is a strict uh, account by account of what happens. It never tells us the inner motivation entirely of anyone. We do know that she is uh, intentionally hiding herself uh, from being a Jew, not revealing that to anyone because that would be beneficial to her. But we don't fully know why she decides to do it uh, this way, and that is an important part. Here's what we do know, especially from the rest of this story that we'll see next week. Living in Susa and and, and in Persia, but specifically in the capital, it was not safe to be a Jew. To be living in the city where Mordecai and Esther lived would have been particularly dangerous. Around the capital, around these people. It would have been particularly dangerous. Now, it wasn't illegal yet. Again, we'll see that next week. But, but it would have been dangerous. And what Mordecai knows and what Esther knows is that if she is able to live as a Persian and be known as a Persian, then that will be better for her on almost every level. Socially, politically, financially, all of those things, it would be better if she were not a Jew. So they pretend she is not a Jew. Regardless of why she chose to do it, what we know is that she wanted to fit in she wanted to fit in so the question is why did she want to fit in did she want to fit in to uh, to compromise to 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 syncretize we've talked about that the last few weeks where she kind of adapts all of these persian cultures and kind of leaves her own culture behind did she want to do that did she want to become more like the persians Or did she just want to be protected and be safe because she knew it was dangerous to try and be a Jew there? Which one is it? Was she trying to move in the direction of being a Persian? Or was she just trying to hide her identity as a Jew? We don't know. But the bottom line is this. She was living as Esther, not as Hadassah. She wasn't standing tall in her Jewish faith with her Jewish name out there for all the outsiders to see. That was hidden. She was hedging her bet, one way or another, making sure no one knew who she belonged to, whose god she belonged to, which god she worshipped. And this is massively important. So again, what was Esther? A reluctant victim or an eager participant? We still don't know yet, so let's read some more. Verse 9. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. His is Haggai the... kind of right-hand man to the king who's over all the women says that she she pleased him she she got to know him he started to like her and he and she won his favor and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem esther had not made known to her, had not made known her people or kindred For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So what happens to Esther? She gets to know this guy who's the right-hand man to the king. She gets to know this guy, and then she wins his favor. She becomes his friend. She impresses him. She impresses him to the point uh, that that he says, I'm going to take care of you here. I'm going to make sure all is well with you. In fact, I'm going to give you seven young ladies to be your handmaidens to tend to you to make sure all is well. Here is all of your cosmetics. Here is everything that you're going to need. And then he kind of tucks her away in a prime spot in the palace and says, when your time uh, is here and it's time to compete, you'll be ready to go. We'll see here in just a second that each of these women that, that were able to compete in this contest got a full year of spa treatments before it was time to see the king. They couldn't just have these women come off the street and go before the king. They wanted to make sure they were presented in top notch fashion. So they got a full year of the top spa treatment in the kingdom. There are clear perks to being the queen. While there, Esther makes quick friends with with others um, and she gets put in this very choice position. So, If Esther is an unwilling participant, she hasn't shown us that yet. Because now what she is doing, what she has done so far, she's not just going along with the order and doing what she has to do. She is maximizing her opportunity in the palace, and she is winning favor along the way. So which one is she? Is she an unwilling participant, or is she there to win the game? We still don't know, but what we know is that she's not showing that she's unwilling. She's, she's doing the work she needs to do. Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Ashuher, uh, to King go into King ah- Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations of the women, since was, this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments, so again, a full year of, uh, of spa work to get ready, When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, that's a cool name, uh, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of abahel the uncle of mordecai who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king she asked for nothing except what hegai the king's eunuch who had charged uh, who was in charge of the woman had advised now esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her so esther is playing the game she's playing every card correctly She's taking notes from Haggai who says this is how you win the king's favor Here's what you take with you. Here's how you approach him Here's how you do this and what's going to happen is every one of these women will get a knight with the king to impress him Every single one of them and whichever one impresses him the most that woman would be The queen that woman would win the contest Like I said, it is a seedy messy deal There is nothing moral about any of this. Whether they wanted to be a part of this or not, they were going to have to be a part of this. So what did Esther do? She plays her cards. We know that. She's listening to advice. She's scheming. She's making friends. She's gaining influence along the way. Whether she wants to be there or not, she's playing the game, and she's playing it better than anybody else. Verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the the month of Tebeth, in the 7th year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts of royal generosity. So Esther wins the contest. Esther does what has to be done. And she wins the contest. She is now Queen Esther. And the king really has no idea who she is. All he knows is he's enjoyed his night with her. All he knows is that she's made good friends in the palace. All he knows is that his right-hand man likes her a lot, too. And now she's Queen Esther. But under some decidedly shady circumstances. This should make you feel uncomfortable. It should make you feel like, ew, this is dirty, this is gross, I don't like this. That's how it should make you feel, because that's what it is. And you say, well, wait a minute, there's no way that Esther had a choice here. She had to go along with this. So how could you even begin to say that she was compromised morally at all? She didn't have a choice, which is true. She probably would have been killed if she had refused. But Esther didn't just not refuse. She worked the system. She played to win. On top of that, we already have the example in chapter 1 of the pagan Vashti who did refuse. And so far, what we've got, two chapters into the book of Esther, is we have a pagan queen that has shown more moral fortitude than our hero, Esther. It's not like we don't have other Bible stories where our heroes take drastic stances against rulers at the risk of their own life. Remember Daniel who would not stop praying, so he was thrown into the lion's den? Remember Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Or as you probably know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do you remember them? They were thrown into the furnace for their disobedience and their refusal to bow down to an idol. Now don't misunderstand. I'm not saying Esther was in this predicament and it was her fault. I am not victim blaming or anything like that here. Remember I told you though this is written as a story. And so far, the author has seen no need to convince us that Esther is a good person. We have no note that she is a morally upright person. We have no note that she's morally corrupt other than the fact that she played the game and that she won here. If the author wanted us to know Esther as a great moral paragon, like Daniel, we would have known it at this point. But the, clearly, the author is not driving at that conclusion. So i'm going to do something dangerous here. I'm going to give you my opinion I try not to do that very often. I try to let the text speak for itself But as I told you you have to do some measure of discerning what you read and what you see here And I tell you this because i'm not going to I can't draw this directly from something that the text says I have to take it all and you are free to draw a different conclusion here, but here's what I think I think esher was a girl that needed to survive I think she needed to live. And I think her and Mordecai were ready to leverage everything, even her Jewish lineage, to make sure that she survived. I think at best, Esther was morally neutral here. I think at best, she was just going along to get along. But more likely, I think she was a more than willing participant in this contest. And you know why I think this? It's because Esther is just like us. She's just like you and she's just like me. Sometimes we can read these stories in the Bible and we can think, oh my gosh, they have a, a book of the Bible named after them. They, they're nothing like me. They must be this high and exalted person, they must be this wonderful person. We read about some of these things that happen and we think, oh my gosh, that could never be me. I'm nothing like that. But here's the thing. These characters that we read about in the Bible, they are just like you and me. And the natural instinct for every one of us is to survive. To just get by. To move on, to to make sure that you make it through to tomorrow. And if you have a chance to then somehow kind of leverage today so that your tomorrow is a little bit better, you're probably going to do it. After all, that's how you, that's how you win at life is what we're told. You try to make today leverage itself for tomorrow. She's just like us. Live another day and tell our story. Ethics and morality come later. She's just like us. I think Esther was a very ordinary woman placed in an extraordinary situation. And she leveraged it perfectly to her advantage because that's what she needed to do. She did just what we would do. Because these Bible characters are no different than you and me. They're just people. She saw her chance to gain security, to gain influence, to ensure her survival. Whenever her survival was anything but guaranteed. She saw her chance and she took it. Friends, this is our life. This is me and this is you. We don't have a narrator here calling the shots for us. Life can be ambiguous and difficult in, in all kinds of ways. We can be in situations where we don't know what the right thing to do is. Esther could have stopped at any point. Vashti shows us this, but she doesn't. She could have stood up just like Vashti, but she didn't. She followed through and she won. I don't think she should be praised for that. But I also don't know that she should be condemned too harshly by us for that. In a lot of ways, we can understand her dilemma. Now, maybe you're not part of a contest like The Bachelor, but you are working through your day trying to figure out, how do I get through this day? And how do I just make sure that I make it to tomorrow? And that I make it to tomorrow a little bit better off than I was today. This is a gritty story. There is a lot of gray area here. And I know some of you don't like that. You hate that. I get that this story is real life and if the bible can't speak to us somehow in these type of moments where it is real life then it is no good to us ultimately it is messy but what's great is that even in this messiness god is about to use esther and he's about to call her to something far greater than what she thought she was leveraging herself for Being the queen is going to be small potatoes compared to what God has in store for her. So turn to chapter 4 now. Chapter 3 has some massive plot developments that we'll cover in more detail next week. So don't get too lost in that. But the bottom line is that Mordecai, her uncle, has gotten mixed up with a pretty powerful guy. And the result is the Jews are in some big trouble. The Jews are in some really big trouble. Esther's people have become the target of a full-on genocide. That's that's what happens in chapter 3. Authorized by none other than her husband, the king. The Jews are terrified. They are weeping in sadness. They are wailing over what's about to happen because they are about to be wiped out. Now remember, the king has no idea that Esther is actually Hadassah, a Jew. He just thinks that she is a nobody from nowhere, that he is made into a somebody. Mordecai goes into full weeping and mourning, and Esther is completely confused. She doesn't understand what is going on, because she is so isolated in the palace, she is completely separated from her people. She has no idea they're about to be wiped out, until she hears about Mordecai and what's going on with Mordecai. She's getting her spa treatments when she hears, oh, Mordecai's in such distress. She says, about what? What's wrong with him? Why is he acting like that? So Mordecai sends word back to Esther, informs her that she has to stop what's about to happen. She has to go to her husband. She has to go to the king and plead that he would relent. But that's not how it works. And Esther informs Mordecai of that. Chapter four, verse eleven. All the king's servants and the people, um, all the king's servants and the people of the king. This is Esther talking to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king in these 30 days. So basically Esther says, I don't think you understand what you're asking me to do. What you're asking me to do cannot be done. I am not allowed. I might be the queen, but I do not have privileges here. I can only come when he calls me and I haven't seen him in a month. I have to wait on him to call me. I can't just walk up to him. I'll be killed. She might be queen, but she does not have full access to her king. Well, for Mordecai, this is wholly unacceptable. He says, you can't, no, 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 you can't do this. We need you right now, Esther. You cannot do this. He feels the urgency of the situation. If you guys know any verses from this book, you're going to know it from this little piece right here at the end of chapter 4. Look how he responds, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai's at least confident. he's, He's trusting God. I'll give him that. It's a dire situation, but he's like, if you don't do it, somebody else will do it. I trust God that much. But you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai says, Esther, if you don't help, someone else will. But you'll be excluded from the blessing whenever God does miraculously deliver us. But, Esther, but, what if God doesn't have another way lined up? What if God doesn't have something else for you for, for us here? Esther, what if, what if the whole reason that you're queen is for this moment right now? Esther, what if that's the case? What if you're the one to deliver us? Have you thought about that, Esther? What if God has you right here, right now for a reason? Now, there's no pause after these verses. Esther's response will be immediate, which we'll see here in a minute. But I can imagine that when Esther heard this from Mordecai, it had to land on her like a ton of bricks. It had to hit her hard. Esther was just a girl trying to survive. And now she was living this great life. She was the queen. She had everything. Her family was lined up for generations to come. The most powerful man in the world had picked her. And had picked her because she was good looking and because she was shrewd and she schemed well and she made it happen. She thought she had her position because she was good. Now she has to come face to face with the reality that there was something else going on here. Something far bigger than her. Something far more important than her. She might be queen, but her glorified position has been surpassed by a divine mission. And here's what Esther knows right now. Her past is irrelevant. Completely irrelevant in this moment how she got this position as queen did not matter was she an immoral worldly schemer working her way into the king's bedroom it didn't matter was she a compromised jew hiding her heritage simply because of fear it did not matter was she exceptionally good at politics and making friends and working the system it didn't matter Was she a moral upright woman that had been taken advantage of abused and forced to be the king's bride? It didn't matter. None of it mattered. How she got where she was did not matter. All that mattered in that moment was the answer to that one question. What was she here for? What was she here for? Why was she in her position? And what would she do with That moment was all that mattered. The rest of it didn't matter anymore. Friends, this morning, I have no idea what your life has been. I cannot see your past. I can't see your skills and your education. I can't see your shame and your trauma. I can't see your sin and your failings. I can't see your charisma and your talent. I don't know the depths to which you have fallen or the heights to which you have soared. Here's what I do know. None of it matters now. In God's economy, none of it matters now. What matters is your answer to the same question that that Esther had. What are you here for and what are you going to do now? That's the beauty of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that our sin does not define us. Our past, good or bad, does not define our future. All God is asking you today is this question. Will you step out and honor Him today? And that question, that moment right now, here in the present, is all that matters. And tomorrow He'll ask you that question again. And the next day He'll ask you that question again. Our past failures, our horrible sin, our terrible defeats, our sinful relapses, our messy lives. God is far less concerned with those things of the past than he is with the faithfulness in our present. And this is only possible because of the gospel. You say, well, what do you mean when you say that? I don't understand what you mean by that. What I mean is that the cross changes everything for us. Jesus' death changes how we define ourselves and how we define our moments. No longer do we sit under the weight of our past. No longer do we condemn ourselves with with how things have gone in the past. And no longer do we sit under our failures. No longer do we puff ourselves up with our hollow past successes either. Instead, we give ourselves over fully by faith to Jesus Christ and trust Him there. When we do that, our sin and our failure is taken by Him and we can be set free We can be totally set free from all that mess in the past, all that sin in the past, all that has drug us down, all that failure. It doesn't matter anymore at all because Christ has taken it upon himself. It's an all-out act of faith on our part, giving our lives to him and saying, it's yours. You do with it what you will. Esther had to decide if her past was who she was or if she was something more and something bigger. If her faith was in herself or in her God, that was the question. Did she trust how she had gotten where she was and did she trust in her position and did she trust in all that came with it or did she trust in her God? If her purpose was in her pampered palace or if it was in her faithfulness to her God. And make no mistake about it, it is an act of faith either way. Either your faith is in what you've done and what you have, or it is in something outside of yourself and something bigger than yourself. Esther has to reckon with all of this in a moment. So what does she say? Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Mordecai, and you can see she senses the weight of what she's about to do. She says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king. Almost certain death. I will go to the king. And though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Those are powerful words. If I perish, I perish. Esther makes her choice. And You may be tempted to kind of get lost in the royal trappings of all of this, queens and kings and palace intrigue and all that goes along with that, but don't be. She was an ordinary girl just like you and me. But in God's providence, there is no such thing as ordinary. There is no such thing. There are not extras in this movie called life. There are no ordinary people. You are not ordinary. You matter too much to God in the story he is writing. We all have roles in this story. We all have our part to play. And there are no ordinary moments either. Esther thought she was having an ordinary day, doing her ordinary things, getting her ordinary spa treatments for the queen. But there are no such things. Every moment matters with God. Every single one. Every one. The one at 3 o'clock this afternoon, the one at 5 o'clock next Thursday, the one at at 2 o'clock next Sunday, the one at 3 o'clock a month from now. Every moment matters. Every single one. Friends, one day you will have to make a decision about who you are and whose you are. You will have to make that decision, just like Esther. When that day and that moment comes, you will have to decide what you trust. You will have to decide where you truly have placed your faith. Will it be in yourself? In your own works, in your own abilities, in your own education, in your own brilliance, in your own goodness, in your own stuff, in your own agenda, in your own plans, in your own intelligence, in your own rule following, in your own education, or in your sorrow, in your shame. What will you trust? How will you define yourself? Or will it be in God himself? Either one is an act of faith. The question, question is, which one do you truly have faith in? Which one have you placed your life in front of and said, take it, it's yours. If I perish, I perish. What kind of person can say, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. What kind of person can do that? How can you say something like that? That may seem it just uh, completely out of the picture for you you're looking at this Christianity thing and you're thinking, I don't know, I'm trying to figure out how all the pieces together and this guy's trying to tell me that I need to go out and say, if I die, I die. What kind of person says, if I die, I die? It's the one who realizes that their life is not their own. They were bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ. And if your life is not your own, then what you do with it is not your choice. And you come and you say, whatever you want, God. If I die, I die. For some of you in here this morning, some of you watching online, this moment, this one, right now, right now, you are hearing God's call. He is saying, come to me. Give it all to me. Do not trust in yourself. Do not trust in yourself. Trust in me. And it may be that you're here this morning or you're watching online for such a time as this. That you can hear this call that says, give it all to me. And God is asking, where is your faith? What do you trust? What are you pursuing? Will today be the day that you place it all in my hands? There are no ordinary moments with him. There's no such thing as an ordinary Sunday. And let me tell you why there's no ordinary moment. It's because every moment, every moment we live in, every single one touches eternity. Every moment. So what will this moment be for you? What will you trust? For many of you in this room, this morning is a call to remind you that every day is a renewal of this commitment. The truth is Every single day that we wake up, we have the same commitment to make. When we roll out of our bed, when our feet hit the floor, and we say to ourselves, if I perish, I perish, I'm God's man today. That's how the day is, for, is, is to begin for us. We, we wake up, we, we get our, our, our drink of coffee, we assess the day, and we say, God, what would you have for me today? And then whatever he puts in front of you, your response is, if I die, I die. I will do what God has called me to do. Some of you have been walking in this malaise of spiritual life. You are like Esther. You have been kind of half hiding the fact that you're a Christian. Kind of half hiding the fact that you come to church. Kind of half trying to figure out, what am I going to do? Am I really going to give everything to God? And it's this moment, for this time, that God is calling you to say, I'm all in here for such a time as this. If I die, I die. God, take me, use me, do whatever you want. That is the call to all of us. That is not the call to the super spiritual. That is not the call to those that are you know, somehow on a different level spiritually. The call to be a Christian is a call to come and die take up your cross and follow me that is a disciple so whenever esther says if i die i die she's not some superhuman person with some super spiritual level that we can't understand she's simply being a disciple and the call for you this morning is will you be a disciple and will you say god i'm not my own you bought me on the cross When sin comes knocking at your door, when you're confronted with those sins that so easily entangle, that so easily pull us back, will you say, no, I will not give in even if it kills me? If I die, I die. I am God's man. I am God's woman. I will do what he has called me to do. This is the story of Esther. Esther we're going to see here in a few, uh, next week, whenever we come back, we're going to look at Mordecai, and we're going to look at what else happens through this, and we're going to see how this moment is the turning point. But it's a moment that touches eternity. It's a moment where she has to decide. She could have said, no, I'm out. I, I'm not putting my life on the line. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of me and myself. But instead, this moment changes everything. I wonder if today is not that moment for you. Where everything changes in your life. Where you decide today, God, I'm all yours. I'm done playing around. I'm done hiding who I am. I'm done fighting against what you've called me to be. And listen to me. What you've done in the past doesn't matter. That call is for today. He will redeem your past. He will make you whole. I don't care how good you are or how bad you are. The question that matters is what will you do today? Are you all in on being a disciple? Can you say, if I die, I die. My life is not my own. Today's the day. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we we scarcely can utter those words without feeling the 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 weight of them, but Father, we know that you have called us to something greater than even our own lives, to the glory of your name. Father, you do not have to use us you do, you do not have to. Uh, to step in and 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 call us you don't have to do that but you choose to may we not miss the ordinary the ordinary days that aren't so ordinary and father may this moment right now this time may it be a marker for someone in this room for someone that's watching online May it be a marker that says I am different now. I am all his. All the way. God, take me and use me. Do whatever you want. That is our heart's cry this morning, God. But We recognize the heaviness and the weight of that. We recognize the the baggage we bring to that, and Father, we ask that you would erase our past, not, not just gone, but taken upon cross on, on Jesus on the cross. And that this moment would be the moment of our salvation. Where we say it's all yours. Father, help us to put our yes on the table this morning to say we'll do whatever you call us to. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.